following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please follow as I read Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father, this evening we come each with various burdens, baggage. We each have loads to carry, and we come as a grateful people knowing that Jesus Christ has borne our greatest burden, and you've called us into fellowship with one another to help bear one another's loads. We pray that you would give us a heart of wisdom to hear what your word has to say and that we might apply it to each of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. About every year or so, our family will drive down to the Tuckwan Glen Nature Preserve in southern Lancaster County, and we'll go hiking on its beautiful trails in the springtime, the summer, or the fall. And uh, usually when we go, we'll have at least one child who is small and needs to be carried and can't make the hike himself. So years ago, my wife and I bought one of those pouches that you put on your chest and strap around your shoulders and your back, and I usually was the one to bear the child, whose legs just dangle and arms dangle as we go along the hike. And uh, some of our children are a bit adventurous and like to run along ahead and climb up high on the rocks or cross over the fallen trees over the creek. And uh, by God's grace, over the years, we've been spared and suffered only one lost pair of glasses and a a run-in with some yellow jackets. So uh, no broken bones so far, praise the Lord. But there have been times as I'm trekking along on these sometimes uh, slippery trails, I I thought to myself, what if, if one of my children falls and breaks a bone, I should be able to carry him or her back to the car. But if I fall and break something, we're in trouble. (laughs) It'll take a long time before our family can call upon help to come get me. So usually I play it safe so as not to uh, burden my family with the load of carrying a big oaf such as myself. Well, just as a family is called upon to bear one another's burdens, as appropriate by age and ability, the church is called to bear 
one another's burdens. In our, in our passage, we find the burden of sin, the, the burdens of various afflictions in the Christian life. In all manner of responsibilities we have towards God and towards one another. Our text offers several exhortations and warnings. The first is an exhortation to the spiritually mature to restore the one who has been caught in sin. And then this is followed by a warning against falling into temptation. Then there's a second exhortation to all believers to bear one another's burdens. And this is followed by another warning concerning conceitedness and self-deception. And then lastly, there is an exhortation with a warning for all of those who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul begins this last chapter of his letter to the Galatians uh, with a not hypothetical situation, but the sadly all-too-frequent situation in which a professing believer is caught in sin. Now, we all sin, and we all stumble in many ways. But I believe that Paul is referring to a more serious and scandalous kind of sin that leads people astray. The kind that ruins testimonies, that brings shame upon the reputation of Christ, of one in which the church leadership will be called upon to exercise discipline. And the word usage here indicates that the sinner is not only caught, like the proverbial child with his hand in the cookie jar, but the sinner is caught by sin. He's caught in sin, and he's caught by sin. He is trapped, he is entangled and ensnared in a web of sin. And so in response to this situation, Paul exhorts those who are spiritual to restore, to rescue the one who is trapped. And by the word spiritual, Paul does not just mean anybody, but those who have demonstrated that they have been led by the Spirit, that they walk with the Spirit, and that they have produced the fruit of the Spirit, the very things Paul talked about in chapter 5. So Paul is referring to the spiritually mature, the ones that we would normally appoint to leadership positions of pastors and deacons and elders and various other ministry leaders. But I don't believe that Paul is forbidding anyone who is not an officer or a pastor from taking part in another believer's restoration, nor do I believe that anyone can make an an excuse insisting that he or she is not spiritual when one is placed providentially with the opportunity to lend aid, perhaps calling upon others to assist in restoring a sinner caught in sin. And notice here that the goal is to restore the person who is caught in sin. Believers stumble and fall. And we are not to mock them like Ham with his father Noah. We must not ignore them or neglect them. We should not condemn or gossip about them. Rather, we must go to them, confront them, 
with the goal of restoration. Now, the word restore was used to describe how a physician in the ancient world would set a broken or dislocated bone so that it might heal properly. That's the goal. Healing. Restoration set in place to lead a sinner to repentance, to reclaim him or her, to gain your brother back, as Jesus says. The Apostle Jude says, to have mercy on those who doubt, to save others by snatching them out of the fire. And so we have this, this exhortation to restore the sinner. Notice it says, in a spirit of gentleness, not harshly, not abrasively, not with self-righteous condemnation or a condescending attitude, but rather in a spirit of humility, with kindness, offering encouragement, and with the confidence in the power of God's grace. Not too long ago, our presbytery, which is made up of teaching elders and ruling elders of the PCA churches that dwell within central Pennsylvania, our presbytery was called upon to respond to a sad event in which one of our fellow pastors was caught in sin, having been unfaithful in his marriage and other transgressions. And the leadership of his church investigated, had investigated the matter thoroughly, had confronted the man with clear evidence, and offered him the opportunity to confess, to repent, with a pledge that he would be treated with justice and with mercy. And praise be to God, the man did humble himself. He confessed his sin. He took ownership of it. Took responsibility for his failings before God to his family and to his church. And so our presbytery gathered formally to offer the man due process and to vote on deposing him, actually taking away his teaching elder credentials. And After we heard all the testimony and we voted to depose the man, we gathered around to pray earnestly for this man's restoration. This man is no longer a pastor. But a wayward son, we believed, snatched back from the flames, who still has work to do to work out his repentance before the Lord. I believe in such a situation, it's good to be caught. It's God's mercy to be caught, to be reclaimed, to have the opportunity to be restored, even in the midst of the shame and the reputation and the damage done. Our presbytery had to commend the leadership of this particular church for the way they handled the situation with true gentleness, with intentionality with firmness and yet godly gentleness to restore this man, to restore his marriage and to protect their own flock from further temptation. In my years here 
I recall a discipline case of our own that stands out in my mind of a man who was caught in a sin, who was confronted, who was disciplined with excommunication, and who did later repent and was restored to our membership. And in my recollection, this man's restoration was made, I believe, most effective because two men in our church committed themselves to this man's restoration, one a ruling elder and one a mature man, but not an officer in our church. These men who took initiative, who went after this man who was rushing headlong into an entangled web of sin and deceit. And this man received pastoral counseling and gracious responses from various people in our church, but I believe it was primarily these two men whose intentionality, whose gentleness was used by God to bring him to a place of repentance and restoration. I sadly hear stories of other churches who fail to be intentional, who overlook serious sins, who allow things to fester and persist without confrontation. I also sadly hear of many disciplined cases that are handled in a matter lacking in gentleness that leaves people bruised, confused, and perhaps even more hardened in their sin. It has been my privilege in my almost 12 years serving here to witness the leadership of Dr. Rogers and Dr. Light in our session over the years who have embodied gentleness, true gentleness and compassion upon the wayward, And I believe it is so vital. And I believe Paul exhorts it in the church culture to take up a posture of gentleness when it comes to issues of church discipline, family discipline, corporate discipline, judicial discipline. And Christians have an opportunity to model gentleness in a culture that really doesn't understand what godly gentleness looks like. Just as one were caught in a fishing accident with fishing line or a hook caught in the skin, you would be both earnest and gentle to set the person free. Likewise, the approach of gentleness is the one that effectively untangles, where other approaches can lead the rescuer trapped him or herself. And so that is the warning that comes at the end of verse 1, a warning to the spiritually mature, those that would take it upon themselves to enter into a troubled situation, to go after those caught in a sin, to seek to restore someone else. Paul says to them to keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. We can be tempted in many ways in such a situation. One way may be to be tempted by the very same sin that you're trying to rescue someone else from. If someone is drowning and you can't swim, you need a flotation device or something to throw to the person who is drowning. If someone is caught in the sin of drunkenness and you have a weakness with a drink, perhaps you are not the right person to help them. A second temptation might be the temptation to judge the one caught in sin. 
Those who are insufficiently mature may look down upon the person who is caught in sin. And when, when lacking in empathy, when failing to demonstrate meekness, we, in our pride, take on an a air of superiority and even communicate disdain towards the person caught in sin. How quickly we forget that from which we were delivered. Well, a third temptation might be what we call cynicism. Anyone who has taken upon themselves to involve themselves with people's lives knows that people's lives are messy. They are deeply involved, especially people who have long entrenched sin patterns, maybe addictive in nature. They take a long time. There is various levels of progress and regress over a a difficult season. And those ill-prepared and not truly spiritually mature lose patience, can grow cynical. That this person just cannot change. Perhaps even veiling a lack of belief in the power of the gospel to change a sinner and turn him away and untangle him from his sin. I believe that the truly spiritually mature are measured by their grasp of the gospel of God's grace. And the extent to which God's grace has a grip on their lives as well. Well, in verse 2, we come to a second exhortation. Now, not just to the leadership, not just to the spiritually mature, but an exhortation to all believers telling us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, a burden was something that was weighty, something that literally was put on the body or upon a beast of burden to bear, but also was figuratively used to refer to the law, to the Old Testament law in particular. And you'll find Jesus and his followers seeking to relieve sinners from the weighty burden of the law of Moses to find their freedom and their rest in the finished work of Christ. And of course, that is one of the themes in this letter of Paul, who is concerned about the Galatians being highly influenced by a group of uh, pharisaical believers, sometimes called Judaizers, who had a preoccupation with the, the law of Moses and a preoccupation with circumcision in trying to get these Gentile believers to submit themselves to things other than a claim of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ. And so Paul seems to be offering a kind of rebuke to this Judaizing tendency and directing these believers to the second greatest commandment. And so we ask in this verse, what does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? Well, the answer is to love your neighbor. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Paul says here, to bear their burdens. Well, what kind of burdens? All kinds of burdens. Sin. Guilt, regret, fear, pain, loss. People bear all kinds of burdens. With physical ailments, with illnesses, with emotional distress, 
fears and anxieties, relational brokenness, financial challenges, and so forth. And just as obedience to the second, the second greatest commandment flows out of our obedience to the first greatest commandment, so bearing one another's burdens flows from the very fact that we have our burden lifted. Scripture refers to sin as a great, very great burden, which is illustrated masterfully by John Bunyan in the classic story Pilgrim's Progress, in which Christian is on a journey and he has this huge pack, this huge burden that represents his sin on his shoulders. And he's, he's bearing this burden as he journeys And not until he comes to the cross of Christ is that burden removed and rolls away and is gone forever. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. The apostle Peter adds, Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Only Jesus can bear the burden of our sin and guilt. Give it to him. Trust him with your greatest burden. But you also need to accept the fact that as Christ takes upon your greatest burden, he calls you and I into relationship with the people of God. We must learn to trust our burdens with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not just called to go it alone. We're not just called to buck up and tough it out. We are called to share our burdens. We're called to shoulder each other's burdens, even as we have allowed Christ to bear the heaviest burden of all. You know, this past week, I could hear the geese up in the sky as they were migrating to their spring breeding grounds. And I was reminded about their, their technique of flight how they take turns bearing the burden of the headwind. The lead goose that's out in front minimizes the wind resistance of those who follow in his wake. But that lead goose cannot bear that burden. He cannot retain that position indefinitely. He has to take a break. And so the geese will rotate periodically so that ne- neither one of those geese has to bear the whole burden. They take turns so they can maximize the flight distance attained by the whole flock. A similar principle is used by the sport of team cycling. All of us have burdens. All of us have weighty baggage that we carry with us in the Christian life. And thankfully, we are not weighed down and burdened with difficulties at the same level, at the same time. Two years ago, our family moved to a new house, and there were good friends in this church who helped us move, and two of those friends are moving next month, so I will have the opportunity to return the favor. There's a time to share our burdens with others, and there was a time to take their burdens on ourselves, and sometimes that may mean listening. Offering prayer, taking godly counsel together, offering material support. But ultimately, it's helping one another to cast 
our burden upon the Lord, the one who alone can carry our most grievous burdens and uses one another to help us press on in our pilgrimage to the celestial city. Verses 3 and 4 offer a lengthy warning against the the sin of self-deceit and comparison. Paul says that for those that, that think they are something when they are nothing, that person deceives himself. And the context here would indicate that Paul is referring to people who think that bearing other people's burdens is beneath them. This is the sin of pride, of people who think too much of themselves, who think that changing stinky diapers is other for other people to handle. Now, we are all guilty of taking ourselves too seriously at one time or another. And in response to that, Romans 12, 3 says that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but rather with sober judgment. Last year, a megachurch pastor resigned from his ministry in response to several charges brought to him from staff and members of his church. And during that time, it was reported that years prior, this pastor had told his leadership team, I am the brand, to declare his assessment of why thousands of people were coming to their church. His resignation is a reminder that no one is indispensable. Dr. Rogers' series in the Sunday morning sermons on the life of David offers several helpful reminders and illustrates well the very dangers of the kind of conceitedness Paul is warning us against thinking ourselves special, entitled, that we are somehow above the law or an exception to the rules. Contrast this with the attitude of the Lord Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on the cross. Well, the twin sin to self-deceit is a sin of comparison covered in verse 4. Paul says that we ought to test our own work so that our ground of boasting will be in ourselves and not based upon what others do. And so we have a responsibility to God to take ownership of our work, to give account of ourselves to the Lord. You know, you can always find someone else to compare yourself to to look good or make yourself feel better about yourself. But sadly, comparing ourselves with others always leads to either envy or pride. We covet or we boast in ourselves. Our fear of man our insecurity, our selfish ambition, our tendency to compare ourselves with others, whether it has to do with our work, our income, beauty, popularity, accomplishment, spirituality, 
relationships with others. Might we be a people who learn to perform for an audience of one? Maybe learn from this text, and there's great passages that Paul writes in his letters to the Corinthians, challenging us to establish our status and our sense of worth in Christ alone and not on the basis of comparison with other people. For I believe that's the very thing that Paul was trying to resist as he is competing with the Judaizers for the affection and the listening ears of these Galatians people. Paul doesn't want to get into that, but wants to exhort this people and exhort us to pursue Christ and to identify ourselves in him and his work without foolishly comparing ourselves to others. Well, there is a last challenge in verse 5, an exhortation with a warning to all believers, where Paul says that each one must bear his own load. And this word load is a different word than the word burden used back in verse 2. And the word burden means something weighty that can, that can be very overwhelming. But this word for load in verse 5 was the common word in the ancient world to refer to the, the pack on a man's back. So, for instance, in the military, soldiers are required to carry their own 40-pound pack. And as they go on a hiking expedition, as they run long distances, as they overcome obstacles, they must carry that pack everywhere they go. And so carrying that 40-pound pack is a, is a minimum requirement for being accepted into the military. And of course, there are times when a soldier cannot carry his own pack, when he's wounded in combat or injured in training, his fellow soldiers will be called upon to carry his pack and perhaps even carry him off the battlefield to a place of safety for rest and healing. And so likewise, Christians are called to carry our own load. That means there is a minimum requirement for the Christian life. We've already indicated part of it, the fact that you and I have a burden, like Pilgrim's Progress's Christian. We have a great weighty burden of sin that is too much for us to carry. And we need the Lord Jesus Christ who alone can handle our burden, whose life, death, and resurrection is what covers the guilt, the weightiness of our sin and satisfy God's justice and secures for us God's grace and forgiving mercy as we trust him with that burden. But even as we let go of our burden, as we surrender our lives to Christ, no one else can bear that burden for you. Nobody else can carry that burden. Christ alone must carry that for you. And yet, as a follower of Christ, you're called to carry a load. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. And that may look different for each person. There are various burdens, there are various loads, there are various crosses that we are called to carry. And that in the Christian life, we must trust the Lord Jesus and his sovereign wisdom on that which is ours to carry in this life. And no one else can do it for you. We must learn to walk with Christ. 
I've said it before, I say it again, that as parents raise children, there are certain things you do for your children, but at, certain, at some point, your children have to do it for themselves. And so it is true spiritually. You can pray for your children, you can read to your children, you can teach your children the way of faith and communicate the gospel, but they have to own it themselves. You cannot do it for them. God has children, but he has no grandchildren. Each one must come and offer his own burden to the Lord and receive the load for him or her to carry in the Christian life. And yet, a reminder here, that even as we learn to walk with Christ, we also learn to walk with one another, learning to carry one another's burdens, the illnesses, the trials, the hardships, the things that can be weighty and overwhelming that we are called into community and fellowship to bear up with one another. And I believe here there's also a final warning as we consider what Paul was trying to communicate to the Galatian people and challenging the Pharisaical Judaizers. We must not weigh other people down with burdens that are not from the Lord. Each one must carry his own load that comes from the Lord, not what that we place upon them. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for laying burdens on other people that could not be born. So we must learn to let other people carry their load as the Lord has called them to carry. So in response to this passage, I believe we are called to encourage and to pray for mature leaders in our church, those who can restore those caught in sin and to do it in a spirit of gentleness. We are called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we must also each bear our own load by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who invites the weary, those who need rest to come to him whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Let us pray. Our dear gracious God and Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ we have the burden bearer, the load carrier, the one who has satisfied your justice, who has quenched your wrath, before whom we are a people free, free from our burden of sin and guilt. And yet, in this fallen world, we still carry weighty matters that we must learn to trust you with and we must learn to carry together as we journey on as we long to be home with you in fellowship with our God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.